Our scripture this morning is from Galatians chapter 3 and verses 15 to 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the, for the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but to God, who gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Fred. I'm part of the team here, and uh, we are back in the book of Galatians. Last week, Brant uh, started us back after the Advent season and the new year uh, into the book of Galatians, and we are right into the middle of it. This is the meat and potatoes of the whole book, and uh, some of it is difficult to understand, and I pray by the grace of God I will, I will help to make it understandable today. So before we, we jump in, uh, can I ask you please to pray with me? Our gracious God, we thank you that, that you are there and that you are not silent. You've given us your word. Help us to treasure your word in our hearts. Help us to meekly receive your word implanted. Help us to come under your, your living and active word this morning. Give us hearing ears and believing hearts, we pray, that we may see your glory revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, someone once said that... Um, the, the book of Galatians is, is written to Christians that are not very good at being Christians. And that's, that's, when I read that this week, I just thought, you nailed it. That's the way we, we need to think about the messages in Galatians that we're hearing. The, the, the book of Galatians is written to Christians who are not very good at being Christians. And and I put up my hand on that one. Um, let me explain why, why I think that we should all probably agree with, uh, with that statement. Because Christians are people who, who put their hope, who put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. Christians are people who who trust, who put all their hope, all their trust, all their faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I, I emphasize that word alone because only Jesus, only Jesus has lived a perfectly sinless life. Only Jesus has 
lived a life of perfect righteousness before God in his thinking, in his speaking, and in his, in his acting. Only Jesus fits that category. The rest of us, definitely not. Not even close. Um, perhaps one of the most go-to verses in the whole Bible that makes this point rather plainly is Romans 3.23. Paul is not ambiguous there. He says that all of us, without exception... All of us have sinned and fallen short. That's an understatement. We've fallen well short of the glory of God. That, that describes us all. Only Jesus is not included in that description. Now the problem, the problem is, because we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The problem is that God is righteous. That God is holy. God is just. And, and God must, must judge our sin. God would not be righteous if he did not deal with our sin. If he did not punish our sin. See, God, God doesn't turn a blind eye to your sin or to my sin. That envy, that greed, that covetousness, that anger, that lust, that anxiety, that frustration, that sharp word. God doesn't turn a blind eye to any of it. It's not like God just sort of sweeps it under the cosmic carpet of the universe and, and, and pretends it isn't there. He sees it all, he knows it all, and he hates it all. God is just. God is holy. His eyes are too pure to look upon wickedness. As Brandt told us last week, everyone who fails to keep and obey all of God's law is under a curse. So in order... This is the good news now. In order to save us from that curse that we heard about last week because of our sin, that curse is just uh, God's way of talking about the judgment against our sin because he is just and holy. In order to save us from the consequences of our sin and the curse that that brings down upon us, what did God do? Well, that's something we talk about every week. And that's something I hope that we cling to every day. God sent his own beloved son into the world. See, God is a God of justice. But God is a God of great, great mercy. God is a God of, of unspeakable, almost unimaginable grace. It is not God's delight, first and foremost, to judge our sin. It is God's delight to forgive. It is God's delight to reconcile sinners to himself. And that is why he sent his son into the world. In order to save us from the curse and the judgment that our sin deserves. See, here's the thing. As I said a moment ago, Jesus is the only one who has lived a perfectly righteous life. He's the only one who has never sinned in thought or word or deed. 
He's the, well, he lived the life that Adam and Eve and all the rest of us have utterly failed to live. He never fell short of the glory of God. And then through his death, well, Jesus suffered the punishment for sin that, that you and I deserve. He, he took our sin upon himself and was condemned in our place. We saw this in Galatians 3.13. Memorize this verse. Bring it home to your heart again and again. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Christ Christ has redeemed us. He has redeemed you. He has redeemed me from the, the curse of the law. The curse of God's holy law against my sin. Christ has redeemed me from it. By becoming a curse for me. By becoming a curse for you. This is the gospel. And then in order to demonstrate that, that, that Christ fully and finally accomplished that redeeming work, he rose again from the dead. He stepped forth from the tomb. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he went and did it. That is the gospel. That is what we preach every week. And I don't think we preach it enough. It's something I hope that you preach to yourself every day. We need this, this good news. We need to believe it. We need to treasure it. We need to savor it. We need to cling to it. We need to hope in it. We need to build our lives upon it and root our hearts deeply down into it. Because without it, we have no hope. See, it's through faith in Jesus. It's through trusting in Jesus that you and I are reconciled to God and we are joyfully accepted by God the Father. He welcomes us with open arms. If you're a Christian this morning, God is not frowning at you. He doesn't have his arms crossed, kind of tapping his foot with a a raised eyebrow. God is only ever looking at you with a great smile, saying to you, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. Because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ. God accepts you in Christ. There's no better news. This is, this is what is called justification by faith. We, we spend a few weeks unpacking this glorious teaching from the Bible. Justification by faith. You're accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, our faith joins us to Jesus in such a way that, that our sin becomes His And His righteousness becomes ours. That's amazing. That's incredible. Theologians call this the great exchange. He takes all of our sin 
and we receive through no merit, through no earning of our own, simply through faith, we receive all of His righteousness. This is the greatest exchange. Paul summarizes this glorious teaching in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says that God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is all good news. But here's where the Here's where the message of Galatians comes home to us. I have been preaching now for 11 minutes and 53 seconds. And this afternoon, you will forget what I've just said. Tomorrow morning, you won't remember. Later this week, this will seem like a distant memory. You forget. I forget. We forget the gospel. We are not very good at being Christians because this gospel goodness just dissipates upon our hearts. It's just like when dew is on the grass in the summertime, in the morning, and everything smells so lovely and it's just nice and fresh, and then the sun comes up and it's all dried out. And then the next thing, you've got all those brown lawns, you know. Ours is brown and dead. It's about three weeks into summer, just like dead. You could bowl on that puppy. It's all gone. And I'm like that. It's just the the dew of gospel goodness dissipates off my life continually. It's like this steam rising. I am not very good at being a Christian because I don't believe and cling to and hope in and trust Jesus Christ with everything I am all the time continuously. And neither do you. If you, if you think you do, talk to me afterwards. See, all of us, without exception, all of us tend to think that we have to supplement the grace of God. Just kind of top it up a little bit. Help God out somehow. You see, we're inclined to think that we have to add to the work of Christ in order to be truly loved and truly accepted by God, right? You've been tempted this week to think that silly thing. Somehow, Jesus and I are in this together. It's a 60-40 thing. No, it isn't. This is the lie that all of us are tempted to believe. This is why we're, we're, we're not as good as th- being the Christians as we sometimes think we are. Just like those to whom Paul wrote this letter, we want to play a role in our own redemption. Truth is, none of us like being completely and hopelessly and continually dependent upon Jesus Christ for absolutely everything. None of us like this. This is not comfy. Anybody that thinks the Christian life is a walk in the park doesn't understand anything. It's, it's, 
it's so against the grain of everything we think and of everything we feel and of everything we believe that we can and must continually trust Jesus Christ for everything and we are helpless. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. We don't like this. We want to we wanna pad out Jesus' resume, don't we? We want to just sort of slip in a little bit of our own righteousness. Thank you very much. And maybe if we're really humble, we'll say it's 90% Jesus and 10% me. But Paul says, no way. That's dangerous. You're under a curse if you think that way. And the reason for that is that we, here it is, It's much easier for me to trust Fred than it is for me to trust Jesus. It's much easier for you to trust you than it is for you to trust the Lord of the universe, who sometimes, you may have noticed, does some things that are not exactly convenient with your plans. Has anyone noticed that? Am I the only one? I see a hand in the back. I've got one honest person in the house. Two, three. Now, do I hear? No, I'm... It's hard. We want to be in control. You want to be in control of your life, don't you? Well, it's not about control. That's why we're so bad at it. We want control. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. I'm in control. You submit you believe, you trust, you hope, you pray, and I'll get you where you need to go. That's what this text is all about. Well, that was all introduction. Um, This morning, as we look at Galatians 3, verses 15 to, what am I, 18? Yeah, 18. Um, There are three words here that Paul uses for the first time in this letter. The word covenant, the word promises, and the word inheritance. And so what I want to do is play off of those three words that Paul uses here. And, and my, my outline is the covenant established, the promises fulfilled, the inheritance guaranteed. These are all things that we, we need to bite down on hard by, by faith. We need to believe these things. This is, there's just three powerful good news statements here that are toward you this morning if you are trusting in Christ. And if you're not, please consider what's being said. Because we would love you to know and enjoy and enter into this glorious good news. The first point I have is in verse 15. The covenant is established. Look at verse 15. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, obviously, this is picking up from what Paul has been saying already. And so we don't have time to go back and look at the past two or or three messages in Galatians, which is what we'd have to do to really get the full argument. But but here's, here's what Paul has said in the preceding verses that I think we can't miss. See, Paul says that This gospel that I've been preaching this morning, this gospel was preached way a long time ago. This gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. And this gospel is the promise of God to bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. 
Look at Galatians 3, 8 and 9. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. See, I wasn't just saying that. It says it right here. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now here, what Paul is doing is he's quoting from Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, which he's quoting from here, is is probably one of the most significant, one of the most glorious, one of the greatest turning points in the whole history of redemption. God came to Abraham. Abraham was a a pagan living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And God came to him there. And here's what he said. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. The land of Canaan. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, here's the part that Paul quotes, and in you, all the families or all the peoples or all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The verse right before the passage we're looking at this morning connects us to this blessing. Look at Galatians 3.14. It's the NIV. It says, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. We looked at the promise of the Spirit um, a few weeks ago. Now, this is a blessing that you can only receive by faith. That's the main point here. You can't earn this blessing. You can't work for this blessing. In fact, if you try and work for this blessing by by somehow obeying the rules. See, this is the way people look at, at what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who keeps all the rules, right? That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is not someone who, you know, who doesn't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. I had to use that. I've been just longing for months. It's not about keeping the rules. It's about trusting completely, fully, helplessly, continually for everything in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. Where was I? And so Paul is saying here that we receive this by faith. We don't work for it. In fact, verse 10 of Galatians 3 says that all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So, in order to encourage us to receive this gospel blessing that God promised to Abraham, Paul does something in verse 15. I'm getting around to it. He focuses on the nature of that covenant. Look at 
Look at verse 15 again. He compares that covenant with Abraham to a man-made covenant. Look at it again. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, he says, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul is using an example from sort of everyday life, and he says... um, He says that a human covenant, or we might think a last will and testament. That might be a way for best for us to understand what Paul is saying here. He's saying, think of it, if if a last will and testament is like this, how much more so is the covenant that God made with Abraham? Paul is saying that when a will or a last will and testament is, is ratified, it's fixed by the death of the person who made it, then it can't be canceled in any way at all. So let me give you an example. If your Aunt Mabel died, and let's say that Aunt Mabel left the house and the car and all the cash to your sister, and she left you with a collection of Russian nesting dolls, um, that's it. Mabel's dead. The will is ratified. Too bad. Enjoy your Russian nesting dolls. That's it. You can't go back on that. You can't go to the lawyer and say, can we rewrite that? Can't be done. Ratified. Fixed. Sorry. Maybe, Maybe you should have been nicer to your Aunt Mabel. So that's the idea. So Paul is arguing here that if, if that is true of, of a human will or a human government, covenant, it's so much more true. It's from the lesser to the greater. That's the argument. It's so much more true of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And we'll look at how God ratified or fixed his covenant with Abraham in a little bit. But the main point is clear. This This covenant promise that God made to Abraham cannot be altered. It cannot be changed. His covenant is permanent. It's established. It is fixed. No one's changing it. That's the point of verse 15. Now into my second point. The promises are fulfilled. Look at verse 16. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, now... The promises which God made on the basis of this covenant with Abraham. He says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then he he wants to draw our attention to something in the text. He says, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And then Paul makes it very clear for us. He says, who is Christ? So this, we're even seeing even more clearly how God preached the gospel beforehand, 2,000 years before Christ came into the world, to Abraham. This is good news. See, what Paul is doing is, I mean, we should pay attention to the words of the Bible very carefully. Because that's what Paul is doing. He's, he's focusing in on the way that, that Genesis 13 and 15 and 17 are worded. And he, he's, he's noticing that, Paul, uh, that, that, that Moses, or the God, 
is, is using very particular, specific language. He's, he's mentioning a particular offspring of Abraham, and, and Paul fills that in for us. He says he's talking about Jesus. See, here's the, here's the reason. Who else could fulfill these promises? No one. No one could fulfill the promise to bless all the peoples of the world. Only Christ could do that. Look, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett can throw $80 trillion into some fund that they want to help the world with, and it is a a drop in the bucket. You You can fix some problems, but you cannot bless all the nations of the earth. Only Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, who died in your place on the cross and then conquered sin and death through His resurrection, only He can bring the whole world that kind of blessing. That's why Paul says He is the the later and the greater offspring of Abraham. It can't be anyone else. Only He can lift the curse that hangs over fallen, sinful humanity. How? I told you earlier on. It's by becoming a curse for you, for us. Only He can restore the blessing. And this is, this is the fullest sense of what blessing in the Bible means. It means to, it means to enjoy the full, glorious presence of God himself. See, that's what all of our hearts most long for, friends. That's what you and I are made for, and that's why we are so profoundly dissatisfied of all the God counterfeits that we run after. Nothing will bathe you in that sense of deep and profound joyful satisfaction like the presence of God himself. If you want to understand the problem of the world, it's just that we're looking for God's substitutes. We, we long for this blessing and it only comes through one person, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Later on in Galatians 3.29 Take this home to your heart right now. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, there's this, well, no, I can't go there. I don't have time. Sorry. See, through faith in Christ, here's the good news. Through faith in Christ, Abraham's story is our story. It's your story. He's the later and greater offspring. And we are heirs of all of God's blessings to to pour out blessing upon the world. And that's why we're on mission. We want to share this good news with others. Now in verse 17, Paul drives home the point that he's been making in verses 15 and 16. Look at what he says. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God 
so as to make the promise void. Now, this is relevant to us because, as I said earlier, we have trouble trusting, believing, hoping in Jesus alone. We want to begin to to bring in some of our own righteousness, which is the equivalent of trying to do the works of the law. And if we do that, Paul will tell us in a moment, if we do that, we will make the promise of God to Abraham void. And that's not what the law can do. The law, which came way afterwards, cannot void the promise that God has given to Abraham. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the main point of the book of Galatians. We can never, we must never combine works of the law with faith in Jesus Christ. That's, well, I don't even know what that would be like. That that is mixing two things that do not belong. See, the law that God gave to Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai cannot annul or render void the promise and the covenant that God established with Abraham hundreds of years earlier. And Paul is rooting our hope this morning in the promise of Abraham and not in the law of Moses. Bit of a theme here in Galatians. In in Romans 4, Paul makes the same point again. Here's what he says in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that, that, that he would be heir of the world, mark that, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the it is for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. Do not think for a moment that you can earn acceptance with God. It, it, the result is curse. So that brings me to our third point, the inheritance guaranteed. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, which he's just said it most certainly does not, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. See, this this whole passage is encouraging us to trust the inheritance that God gave to Abraham, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We must believe it in order to receive it. God deals with us on the basis of trusting his promises, not on the basis of our performance. And I know I've said this 20 different ways this morning, but you're going to forget it this week. I assure you, you're going to think that somehow we've got to help out Jesus. Can't be done. I've tried. It's it's failure all the way. So we believe the promise. That's what this whole message is about. The whole application point this morning is one. Believe, trust, hope in Jesus. Don't add anything to the work that he has already done. So that's an awful lot, wouldn't you say, that's riding on a promise? Now, I I don't know about you, 
I have trouble with promises. I'm not going to get up here and play my little violin for you, but, but I have had people break fairly significant promises to me. And some of them are like 40 years ago, and it still hurts. It hurts a lot. And so I tend to not trust easily. And when people promise me things, they don't know it, but I sort of in the back of my mind goes, yeah, we'll see. I'm going to hedge my bets. I don't know. Maybe. I hope so. I'm a bit of a cynic. I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic that way. And, and so I don't find it easy to trust these promises, and maybe you don't either. How do we know that God is going to keep these promises? That's the big question. Maybe you're, you feel a little bit like that guy in Mark's gospel where he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That is by far and away the most common prayer I have ever prayed. I believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe you're like that this morning. How can I trust this promise to me that, that seems to promise so, so, so much? Well, you're not alone. You're not the first person. In fact, this is a, this is a problem that, that Abraham had. God had promised, for example, in, in Genesis 12, to make Abraham a great nation. And when he promised that promise to Abraham and he reiterated that promise again and again, guess what? Abraham didn't have any children. And the Bible tells us that, that his wife, Sarah, was barren. She couldn't have children. So that's quite a promise to make to a guy in his situation. If he had eight kids, you'd think, well, we're off to a good start, maybe. You know, some people are crazy like that. And so, so Abraham, you know, there'd be some reason to doubt, Right? Look at, look at Genesis 15, 7 and 8. It says that he, God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you up out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, that is Abraham, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Good question. How can I trust you? Are you sure? Really? Come on. In response to this question, look at what the Lord says to him in verses 9 and 10. This is a bizarre response. From our perspective, this is, this is not the answer you might expect. Uh, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Of course! <laughs> and then in verse 10, it says that Abraham brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Now, what on earth is going on here? This is very strange to us. But it wasn't strange to Abraham. Abraham knew as soon as God told him what to do, Abraham's, okay, I know what you're doing. See, what God, what we're, we're eavesdropping here on what's called a covenant cutting ceremony. God is cutting a covenant and I would suggest ratifying a covenant with Abraham right here. This is the way it was done 4,000 years ago. Probably you won't see this in kits. You see, if we want to know if somebody's going to keep their promise, what do we do? Write it down. And then I'm going to hire uh, Jerry 
And, and he is going to be a legal witness. This is all going to be worded very carefully. It's going to have like one of those blue uh, papers at the corner stapled and maybe every line of the contract will be numbered. And it's going to be looked at carefully. And then our signatures will be on the bottom. And Jerry will witness it and seal it. And that baby is in line. Like if you break that covenant, you're in trouble, Right? That was meant to be a little bit funny. I, he says clap, and you guys are all over the place. I suggest that maybe we should laugh, and you guys are totally quiet. But look at what happens. See, in the ancient Middle East, a king wants to make a covenant with someone. This is what he would do. The lesser of the two parties. So if a king is making a, a, a covenant with some sort of vassal uh, governor or something like that. You're going to go and you're going to get these animals. You're going to cut them in half and, and you're, you're going to lay them out. And you're going to lay them out in a way that the halves are set over against each other. And there's like this little hallway, like a little aisle like this between the animals, the parts of the animals, right? And then the lesser person in the covenant would pass between or walk between the halves of the animals. And in this way, in effect, he would be saying this. If I don't hold up my end of this covenant with you, my life shall be like these animals. I shall suffer the penalty of death if I should ever break this covenant. Tended to be a little serious back then, but this is, this is what's going on. This is a covenant ceremony. Look at verses 12 to 16. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram or Abraham, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they, his descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation. And then we read in verses 17 and 18, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, pay attention here, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt and so forth. So what is going on here? This is very unusual. For any ancient person reading this text, this is not at all what anyone would expect. This is unusual. This is surprising. This is bizarre. See, instead of Abraham passing between the pieces of the animal, we read that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between them. Now, I don't know what that might mean to you, but if you, if you consider that language, it is very strongly reminiscent and suggestive of the language that God uses to describe himself when he led the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt and when he met with them and made a covenant with them on Mount Sinai and then when he led them through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. This is that.
See, in, in the ancient world, it would have been the lesser of the two parties that passed between. And what we've just heard about and witnessed is that God, the Lord, the King, passes between the pieces. In a sense, God is saying, Abraham, I will go through for both of us. See, remember, Abraham is asleep when this is happening. Not only do I promise to keep my covenant with you, but if either of us fails to keep the covenant, I will take the curse for both of us upon myself. And in fact, God is saying to Abraham, I promise to bless you even if it means I have to die. This is the ratification of that covenant. 2,000 years later in Jerusalem, a great darkness fell upon the land. And God made another covenant. On the very first Good Friday, Christ was crucified for our sin. Matthew 27 says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. How do you know that God will keep his promise to you? Look to the cross. Look to Christ. Look to the offspring of Abraham who became a curse for you who suffered and died in your place so that through faith in him you'd be reconciled. You'd be totally forgiven and you'd be so warmly and joyfully welcomed into the family of your Father in heaven. This, this is our inheritance. God himself. And it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed to you through the shedding of the blood and the death of God's own beloved son. There's only one way to respond to this. Believe. Believe this promise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you give us the humility to stop trusting in ourselves so incessantly. Stop trying to control every outcome. Manage every detail. Build our own resume of accomplishment and, and worth. Give us the humility to just be done with all that striving and to look to the work that your son has done for us to reconcile us to you, sinners, cut off without a hope, to give us a hope, to give us an inheritance, to bring us fully and finally into your glorious blessed and joyful presence at the end of the age. Father, what our appetite for, for this? I don't, I don't want an inheritance that, that 
moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. I want the inheritance that is kept secure and safe and pure and undefiled in heaven for me. I want you, Lord. Give us, give us that desire to want you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.